Al Jazeera podcast. Hisham Awardani has a long road of recovery ahead. In an interview with PBS, Elizabeth Price, Hisham's mother, said he may never walk again after he was shot. A bullet is lodged in his spine. The bullet hit his clavicle, and we're grateful that it hit his clavicle because if it hadn't, it might very well have just plowed through his spine and killed him. This was in the U.S. city of Burlington, Vermont. Hisham and his two childhood friends, Kinan Abdelhamid and Tahseen Ahmed, were walking to a family dinner when suddenly they were attacked. The three 20-year-olds are all of Palestinian descent. Two of them were wearing kafiyas, a traditional Palestinian headdress, and they were reportedly speaking a mixture of English and Arabic. It was almost surreal how quickly he did it. In an interview with The View on ABC, Kinan described the moment of the shooting. I still kind of remember it, and even at the moment, it was kind of moving in a nightmare. He seemed like he was aiming to kill. As for Hisham, who's still in the hospital, he wrote a text to his university professor to read during a vigil on campus. As much as I appreciate and love every single one of you to hear today, I am but one casualty in this much wider conflict. It's far from the first incident against Palestinians in the U.S. since October 7th. So what does it mean for the community and how are people responding? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The incident in Burlington is another in a growing number of documented attacks against Arab Americans and supporters of Palestine. It is a melting pot, but not of terrorists. I have not done anything to you, and you are sitting here cursing at me and yelling at me. So I'm wearing a scarf, and I'm getting attacked because apparently I'm a terrorist. We're going to put big signs here that say this guy believes in Hamas. We killed 4,000 Palestinian kids. You know what? It wasn't enough. Advocacy groups have been collecting reports of incidents of bias and violence for weeks now. The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, or ADC, has documented over 1,300 hate incidents across the U.S. since October 7th. That's more than what they received in all of the previous year. The targets of those incidents included the head of ADC, Abed Ayoub. And the Friday after Thanksgiving, I personally received a very serious death threat that they they are investigating. Mm. And we had to keep the office closed out of precaution for a few days just to make sure that nobody, as the caller said, that, you know, wants to come into the office and stab us in our necks. Oh, wow. Amongst other things. Really sorry that happened to you. So, Abed, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today because I know you have been very busy over these last few weeks. I'm speaking to you hours after you had a virtual meeting with the U.S. Justice Department. Is there anything you can tell me about what happened at that meeting? Thank you, and and thank you for having us. The meetings with the Justice Department lately have um, 
been focused on the issues we're facing as Arabs, Palestinians, and Muslims in this country. The particular meetings we had today were really focused on the hate incidents we've been seeing from Vermont and in other situations and in other cities. The meeting itself was a reaffirming of the position that DOJ is taking seriously all allegations of hate and all suspected hate crimes. They will be pursued and they will be investigated, and and that's what we are asking for. But I know DOJ does have to go through the motions, and so does the state of Vermont before they can bring those charges. But we're cautiously optimistic that we are moving in the direction of hopefully getting hate crimes charges in Vermont. The way that you um, told me that story, I think it will be obvious to our listeners that this is not unusual for you. But since most people do not know what it even means to get a call from the DOJ, walk me through how that happened. Well, we communicate regularly with DOJ. The phone calls from the department come often when we are in a crisis and at all hours of the day. At times we'll get phone calls at 11 in the evening or past midnight, you know, if if there is a crisis that is facing the community. And this does happen on the regular and it's a way to keep the communication and the dialogue between our community and the lawmakers, uh, the law enforcers in this country going. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of disagreement. There are a lot of things we think they can do better. But when it comes to enforcing hate crimes laws and going after those that are threatening our community, they do seem committed. So it is a tense time, and it's a time where that dialogue and conversation between the Department of Justice and our community is important. So you are in D.C., where the seat of power, where the DOJ is. So I want to move to the state of Vermont, northeast of the U.S. Capitol, and look at the aftermath of one of the points of conversation at your meeting. And of course, that is the shooting that made headlines. Now, police have arrested 48-year-old Jason Eaton, and they've charged him with attempted murder, and he's pled not guilty. What more can you tell us about what happened that night? It was a, a, a very tragic night and a very tragic evening. I think we're finally starting to hear from the victims themselves and from gaining an understanding of how traumatic this was and how the impact it's going to leave on them uh, for the rest of their life. Here's Kenan's mother, Tamara Tamimi, on The View. It's really frightening. It's really traumatizing. We're already grieving with some 20,000 people dead in Gaza and still digging bodies out from under the rubble. And we were already just afraid for ourselves. And then to have this happen in the United States is just so frightening. It really is a, a, a sad situation. And when you hear the victims and you understand the story, it becomes even clearer that they were targeted for wearing the kafid. The shooter just walked home, didn't say anything, and just opened fire. That shows that it is a hate crime. That shows the only thing that was on his mind was, these guys are wearing a kafiyah, they're Arab, they're Palestinian, and I am going to shoot them. That's how it played out. And it's something that's going to really impact the community and something that shows the uh, level of hate we're facing as Arabs, Palestinians, as Muslims uh, in this country. This is Wafiq Faur. He's a member of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine, and he lives near Burlington. The first reaction as a father 
I felt on despair. Both my kids are similar age to those young Palestinians. Both my kids, they wear kofiyas and they walk on the same streets in Burlington that these three Palestinians gunned down for no reason but to hate crime. More on the climate of fear all this is creating after the break. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. So, Abed, since the start of the war in Gaza, there has been a growing number of hateful incidents against supporters of Palestine in the U.S. And for many Muslims and many Arabs, it evokes this post-9-11 climate of fear and of tension and just of not knowing what might happen next. What can you tell me about the rise of these incidents? Because I know you've been collecting stories, you've been collecting examples of things that people send you. The rise of incidents, the rise of hate crimes that we're seeing now, the the numbers are on par with 9-11, maybe even a little bit higher. Mm. But the numbers don't tell the full story. What we saw after 9-11 is the discrimination and the hate that this country has seen for generations. And and, and Arabs are not the first, and Muslims are not the first to face it post 9-11. It's existed, it's been there. The main difference is this. After October 7, the hate, the incidents, and the bigotry we're seeing is more sophisticated and more structured. And that's not something the Arab and the new Muslim uh, immigrant communities are used to in the U.S. They're not used to having systems come into play that are are targeting you so you lose your job because you're Arab or you are kicked out of school because of what you've said. These campaigns against us are organized, well-funded, and something we haven't faced as a community, targeting individuals for their political views and for who they are and what they believe in. This used to happen on an individual basis, cases here and there, but now it is far wider and has been scaled to really impact a lot more of our community members. There is a effort to silence the community and silence anybody that speaks up against, you know, Zionism or speaks up against the actions of Israel. And these entities have been given an opportunity to, you know, formulate their campaigns, put their campaigns together with no pushback. You know, Abed, I'm in several group chats and WhatsApp groups, and in them, friends or acquaintances or friends talking about other friends are sharing stories of discrimination and even attacks in some points. And often the advice that they're getting from other people in those group chats is, go report it to ADC. Go tell Abed. Specifically, your name comes up a lot. So first of all, (laughs) 
What does it feel like to be the person who is the clearinghouse for so many of these incidents? How are you coping with that? You know, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to serve and, and to provide the community a service. Honestly, it's, you know, I embrace the pressure and I embrace the time of crisis. Anybody that's worked closely with me understands that I keep a level and cool head. And it is, you know, these are moments where we have to step up for the community. ADC is a community organization. But as I've been telling people, if we have thousands of cases at the end of the assembly line, that means we're missing something at the beginning. Why are these cases still happening? Why are we still losing our jobs? Why do we still have student groups being shut down? We're still being shot. We're still being, you know, like what happened to Adia at Chicago. Investigators in the Chicago area are investigating a horrific attack on a six-year-old boy and his mother. The local sheriff's office says their landlord targeted them because they were Muslims. What are we missing? And I think that's where the focus for the Arab and the Muslim community needs to be heading into 2024 is we need to rethink our psyche. Hmm. I want to bring this back to the students. The three young men who were shot in Vermont were 20 years old and all of them students. Hisham Awartani is currently a student at Brown University. And the Monday after the shooting, the campus held a vigil for him. And that quickly turned into a protest. And students were demanding the university divest from investments that support Israel. This is not the only campus where this is happening. There have been ongoing tensions between student groups and university officials for weeks now on many college campuses in the U.S. What do you make of what we're seeing there? The tide is turning. I think a lot of people have said that a lot more people are speaking up on behalf of Palestinians and on behalf of humanity. And I think these efforts to quiet us, to silence us, is in response to what we saw happen at Brown University, that they are trying to keep young people silent. They're trying to push them into being quiet, push them away from activism, because they fear that, that you know, that they're, they're losing their grip on the narrative. This is Hisham's professor, Bishara Dumani, who you heard at the beginning of this episode. The vigil that was held at Brown University for Hisham uh, in many ways reflects the larger situation. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it was uh, a spiritually poignant moment. Uh, and on the other hand, part of it turned into a protest uh, that expressed the anger so many uh, of us feel about this heinous crime and the toxic atmosphere in the United States that made it possible, as well as the fear that it could happen to others. Finally, Habit, the families of the three students recently put out a statement saying they believe what happened was a hate crime, and they placed the blame on U.S. media and elected officials from, quote, the highest levels of government for spreading misinformation and using racist and dehumanizing language. Do you agree with that assessment? I wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. I, I think that assessment is on point. The rhetoric, the dehumanization that we see coming from elected officials, from the news media, that's what leads to hate crimes. That's what gives individuals 
the right to believe they need to protect themselves from the Palestinians. So let's stab a six-year-old boy to death and let's stab his mother. That's what gives the right of a, of a man in Burlington to walk off his front porch without saying a word, shooting three uh, young Palestinian men. It's, it's this rhetoric that leads to that. And it's this dehumanization and it's still happening. Just look at what elected officials are saying on any day of the week at any time uh, about our community. And it's troubling to see that is it's permitted to continue. And eventually they're going to have to understand that this is having an impact and it needs to stop. As for Wafiq of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine, he refuses to be afraid. We want our voice to be heard because any hate crime is to silence the victims and the supporter of that victim. And for that, my community and our solidarity groups here in Vermont will never be silent. And we will be determined and we will be on the streets until justice can happen and until this crime can be called as is a hate crime and as long as the Palestinian people suffering from occupation and apartheid, we will be in the street. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Sonia Bagat and Chloe K. Lee, with Veronisa Campana, David Enders, Sariel Khalili, Amy Walters, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Madhotra, Zaina Bezer, Nigin Oliayi, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.